Beth choked out a brief explanation as she handed me the newspaper earlier this week. There was on the front page the account of two young men who had been imprisoned and charged with burglary, arson, and attempted murder. This news was really painful to us as a family because one of those young men was one of the church neighbor kids that we had gotten to know some years ago. We'd often laughed with him and played around with him. We'd gotten to know him. We had brought him to vacation Bible school and shared the gospel with him. He was a rascal, to be sure, uh, but he was our little friend, lively, curious boy who made life on Glenhurst Avenue really interesting and fun. But our little friend moved away, and he grew up. And though still in his teens, now faces a lengthy prison sentence. I don't know how else you can look at this, but as purely tragic. He was so close to the truth. He heard the gospel, frequented our church, knew good people. We loved him. But to this point in time, he remains separated from the life and the purposes of God. This is utterly tragic. But as I look back through the years, there is another, less dramatic certainly, but truly tragic story that far more commonly plays out among us as a church and as the followers of Christ Many are professing followers of Jesus Christ whose lives are not really oriented to the life and the purposes of God. And this is tragic. By nature, every one of us is intensely oriented to our own lives. We are actively involved in securing housing and transportation and clothing, and food. We're anxiously involved in making grades, and making friends, and raising families, and advancing careers, in pursuing health, and travel, and communications, and entertainment. Simply put, we are all very interested in our own lives. And we pour out unbelievable amount of attention upon our own lives and our own purposes. The tragedy comes when we remain frozen in that mode for the rest of our lives. We embrace the gospel. We attend church. We learn God's word. We fellowship with his people and claim to follow Jesus. Yet we permit our lives to remain fundamentally oriented toward fulfilling our own purposes and our own ambitions. That's really what drives us at the end of the day. And this is truly tragic. A Christian scurries about daily life, striving to achieve his or her every ambition while remaining disoriented to God's life and God's glorious purposes in this world. So the picture I'm trying to draw here is of basically two kinds of believers. The one, a professing believer whose small life is oriented to advancing self and pursuing that which is temporal. The other is the believer whose life is consciously oriented to the living Christ and actively engaged in serving His grand, saving, eternal purposes in this world. Consciously laboring for His glory and kingdom in all things. Who's plugged in not into the self-project, but who's plugged into God's project. His saving purposes in this world. That kind of a life orientation pulsates on every page of the book of Acts 
which by God's grace we will consider together for some time. I'd like to start a series through this book by providing an overview of this book, seeking to strike at the thematic heart of the book of Acts as a whole while allowing that consideration to inform us in the weeks ahead. Now, this is a bit unusual as a sermon, as such, to preach an entire book in one setting, and I won't really try to do that, more just to sketch some of these themes. But there's several background matters that we want to turn to first, just briefly. It's a bit teachy, I realize, but I think as we come to it, to begin to move toward what the message of this book is. And in fact, to say that as we look at the people who are here, and if we get the point of the book, we cannot remain unplugged into the purposes of God. We cannot live simply to serve our own purposes, but we see a much larger vision, a much more glorious plan. But as we work our way there, a little bit of uh, preparation is is in order and I think will help us. Let's look at Acts in verse 1 of chapter 1. These first two verses, we'll stop with that, but we read here that in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. As we consider the author and the recipients of this book, we find here a phrase, first of all, that catches our attention. It says, I've been talking to you about the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. And it certainly sounds that Jesus is not done doing and teaching. Indeed, from cover to cover in this book, the Acts records the ongoing work of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit who mediates the influence of Jesus to his followers, his ongoing teaching. But here Luke refers to his first book, and that would assume then that this is the second book, And this is referring back, obviously, to the Gospel of Luke. If you'll turn back there to the first verses, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we find Theophilus again. Luke is writing both of these books to this same man, addressing them, the books to him. He says in the Gospel of Luke, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us." just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is a book about the life of Jesus Christ. And it is a companion volume, or acts as a companion volume, to this gospel, both books being written by the physician Luke, addressed to a certain Theophilus. We don't know who he is, but the way that these introductions are given, and this most excellent Theophilus, fits in that time frame to describe a patron, that is someone who would pay for the author to write the book, providing whatever was needed for that process. We don't know that that's who Theophilus is, but it's certainly possible. But what we do know is that Luke meant to write to more than just a Theophilus. And I think our presence here today should pretty much confirm that he was pretty successful in writing to a broader audience. He's writing to us. This is for our exhortation. This book about the life of Jesus Christ. This book about what happens after Jesus dies, rises, and ascends into heaven. The book of Acts. For his part, let's remember that Luke was a well-educated physician. 
whose command of the Greek language and literary skill are extraordinary. Even critics of the Bible will acknowledge this, that the Greek of this text is profound. He evidences a keen knowledge not only of literary skill in the Greek language, but also of the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, as well as an impeccable grasp of the political, social, and geographic and seafaring environments of the ancient world. In fact, some who have started saying that Luke could not have ever written this book, which is pretty much where all critics start with every book of the Bible, is that the person who says they wrote it didn't write it, or what church history said, it wasn't really the case. They've got to make a career somehow, so they go after this all the time. There's some, it's interesting, with Luke's writings, who've actually been convinced of the authenticity of this book by the knowledge that he shows of these various environments. It's impeccable. He was a very gifted, wise, learned man who was skilled in Greek. But what motivates Luke to invest his immense literary talent is not to show off his abilities. And it's not merely to talk to Theophilus. This is an immense amount of work that goes into these two papyrus rolls. But it is rather to give a history of the spread of the gospel by the early church after Jesus' ascension into heaven. That is what Luke is about here in the book of Acts. We ask then, as we think of Luke, the physician, writing to Theophilus and a broader audience about the life of Christ and about the early church and the spread of the message of Jesus, we might ask, when was this book written? Now that's a boring question to us in some ways because we just know it was written a long, long time ago and that's really all that matters. But there's a reason that I think it's vital to consider this just briefly at the head of this series of sermons. The book is not dated for us, but there are indicators that it was written in the early 60s. Now the importance of this I'll get to in just a moment, but just think of these things. Paul takes, Luke rather, takes a lot of time to talk about Paul and how he gets to Rome. There's a lot of discussion about Roman jurisprudence and and all of the issues that lead to getting to Rome for Paul. With all of that interest in Roman government and the way that Paul gets to Rome, we find that Luke never mentions Paul's death. He was martyred by Nero, imprisoned and, from what we understand, beheaded Uh, by Nero. Why not mention that? That took place in 64-65. Why not mention the conquest of Jerusalem in 70 AD? Why not mention that the Jews were persecuted by Rome in 66 AD? We don't see any of this at the end of the book. And the book ends in a very abrupt way with Paul really doing fairly well, it would seem, under house arrest in Rome. Why not mention any of these things? There's a lot of answers to it, but I think probably the most obvious answer is they hadn't happened yet. And that, the book ends where it ends, two years after Paul is imprisoned under house arrest there in Rome. And it ends fairly amiably in the relationship with the Roman government. We don't know if Luke intended to write another one or not, but there's just no evidence in the book that it was written at a later date. I think we must set it before the death of Paul in the mid-60s. Now, who cares? I mean, that's so long ago. Why does it matter if he wrote in the 60s, the 80s, or in the second century? Well, this issue comes up and has come up numerous times in my experience with university students. Because under liberal uh, direction, many will question 
the writing, the date of writing for, the gospel, or for Acts and for the Gospel of Luke too, but for Acts. And it, it, the reason that this is done is to say that you will find in this book a division between two leaders of the church. There's Paul and there's Peter. And these two men are not getting along. And the division has become so sharp in the ancient church that by the second century, someone wrote this book, the book of Acts, to try to pour water on that fire, to try to say that it's really not that big of a deal. Peter and Paul had some differences of opinion, but uh, you know we need to get along here as a church. Well, what this does is undermines the authenticity of this message, the history of Acts. It makes Luke really a liar or brings to question whether Luke really wrote the book. But just that we would know, J.B. Lightfoot has demonstrated in his studies of the apostolic fathers that there simply is no evidence of any such factionalism in the ancient church. And if you are under that teaching somewhere, you can know there is an answer to this. The Peter-Paul divide is a fabrication of liberal scholars anxious to cast doubt upon the integrity of the Bible. Yes, Peter and Paul did have differences of opinion. They're recorded here. But we also need to be honest with the fact that they spoke very reverently of one another and honored one another. That all just gets missed in the discussion from the liberal standpoint. These two men had differences, but they got along. They wrote about the need to pursue unity as brothers in Christ, and I, for one, believe that they honored what they wrote, that they strove to do exactly that. This book is, at the end of the day, a straightforward history of the formation and development of the early church, written, I believe, in the early 60s. Moving past that, one more note of effort here, just to understand the book as a whole from a structural standpoint. The book divides into two sections, chapters 1 through 12 and chapters 13 through 28. The leader in the first section is Peter, and in the second, Paul. The location in the first, Jerusalem and the surrounding region, and in the second, the modern-day areas of Turkey, Greece, and Italy. The agenda is a bit different as well in both. In the first section, there's the solidification of the church and initial outreach to Gentiles. And in the second section, under Paul's leadership, the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles and the formation of the Gentile churches. These emphases are unique to each section of the book. What we also find here is six summary statements. It's arguable whether the last one is a summary of, this, of its particular segment probably of the entire book. But think of a, of a, of a disc, uh, maybe a music disc, a CD that has various tracks on it. Uh, with those tracks, it's all part of one, but there's a moving from one track to another. There's a progression there as the music plays. And so it is with this book. There's a progression, various tracks, as this book plays out. Now, what I'd like us to do is to look at these six summary statements. And the person who divided the book of Acts into chapters and verses clearly had no concept of this because missed pretty much every one of them as the start of a chapter. But I think as we put the book together, we see a progression here in these six summaries help us to discern that progression. And I just ask you to think through it and what do you see in these summary statements. There's a theme here that clearly emerges. The first coming in 6-7. Let's look at that together. Chapter 6 and verse 7. 
In these first chapters of the book of Acts, we have the Jerusalem church under the leadership of the apostles, and the summary is given that the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We notice the multiplication of disciples. The word of God is spreading Chapter 9 and verse 31, the gospel reaches to Samaria. And we have in chapter 9 the conversion of the Apostle Paul. In verse 31 of chapter 9 we read, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. There's more people coming to know Christ the Savior. In chapter 12, in verse 24, this next track, including Peter and the conversion of the Gentiles with Cornelius in chapter 10 and explained in chapter 11. Chapter 12, verse 24 says, in summary, the word of God increased and multiplied. Increased now to the Gentiles. As we move, then it's as if the baton is now passed with the Apostle Peter, who was oriented there to Jerusalem, to the Jewish Christians. The baton is now passed as Cornelius comes to know Christ as Savior and other Gentiles. We have now the introduction of Paul, who was saved in chapter 9, and is now going to carry the mission to the Gentiles. First summary along the way, we find at 16 and verse 5. In this track, Paul's missionary journey is described, his first missionary journey. There is the Jerusalem Council that deals with the issue of salvation of the Gentiles and how it relates to salvation of the Jews and the Mosaic Law particularly. And in 16.5 we read, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. You see a theme. Chapter 19 and verse 20. In this segment, we have more discussion of Paul's missionary endeavors. 19 and verse 20, we read, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And then as the book ends, a summary of the entire book of what we are to gain from it, and indeed of this last track, we read in verse 30 of chapter 28 that Paul was living for two years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Without hindrance, again, connecting to that idea of multiplying, of increasing, of the word of God spreading. Now, what does this all say to us? As we look at these summary statements, there's a clear indication of the message of the book of Acts as a whole, isn't there? And what is the point? Each of these summary statements concludes each individual tract asserting that God's saving purposes have been advanced. The gospel has spread through the efforts of Jesus' followers to further reaches of the ancient world. And Luke, I think, then is clearly showing us that it is God's sovereign saving purposes that are being fulfilled through Jesus' followers and the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' absence. We'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. But what we see here clearly is from Jerusalem to Rome. What we see is from the Jews to the Gentiles. The gospel conquers in the power of the Spirit. And so the point that we are to see, I think, in the book of Acts is this movement of the gospel. This God work that's taking place to bring Gentiles to saving faith. He is actively advancing 
the saving effects of Jesus Christ. Now that's, in a sense, the skeleton. We have these two major divisions, these three subsections within those major divisions. Remember, there was no outlining in the ancient text, just all written on a scroll and not even, no, not only no punctuation, not even spaces between words. Though we don't know precisely how Luke labored, we do know that this is the case with many of these ancient texts. And so we don't really know how it's divided out unless we work at it and labor at it. And this is what we see, these two divisions and these six tracks through the book of Acts. But if this is the structure, this is the skeleton, let's now begin to put some flesh on it. This is a bit arbitrary. These are five overlapping ideas or themes, but I think they're important. We're getting somewhere. So that was the teachy part. We'll do a little bit more of it, but as we work our way here, now the life begins to get put on the skeleton, and it really becomes thrilling. What we see as this structure is there, and as the work carries out, what we find is first theme, the centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection. That really shouldn't surprise us in one sense, and it's maybe commonplace for us to understand this, but let's think of the significance of it. The centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection. This historical reality is a dominant theme in the sermons and the testimonials of the apostles that are scattered throughout the Acts. As odd as it may seem to untrained ears, the church in Acts anxiously spread news that their leader had died. This was really important to them. And particularly as they proclaimed this message to the Jews, they did not blush as Jews to say, you killed him. Now this we will see in message after message, this was their theme. Chapter 2 and verse 23, in the first sermon recorded in Acts, indeed the first sermon of the church era, as we understand it, Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, we read this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. You killed by the hands of lawless men. You killed him, you crucified him. This is the message. 2 in verse 36, as he winds his way to the end of the message, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. We'll get back to that theme, but just looking at this aspect of it, chapter 3, verse 13, in another address, 3.13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over, and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life." You killed the author of life, Jesus. This is their message. We know this message doesn't stand alone, doesn't it? It's not just a wagging of the finger. You guys killed Jesus. But this message is coupled with the glorious witness that God raised Jesus from the dead. Chapter 2 and verse 24. Having just accused them of killing Jesus, verse 24, Peter says, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You killed him, God raised him. That's the message. Chapter 3 and verse 15, we see it there as well. After he says, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. This will be the common theme of these sermons. The death and resurrection 
of Jesus in Acts serves as unimpeachable evidence that Jesus was God's promised Messiah sent to save sinners. That's why they're running around saying, you killed Jesus and God raised him from the dead. This is what God had planned all along. This all fills, fulfills prophecy. It fits God's purposes. Notice chapter 17 and verse 2. Chapter 17 and verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom, on the three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. 17.3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, who's the Christ? The Christ is the Messiah, the one that God will send, to suffer and to rise from the dead. There's their message. You killed him, God raised him. This is all according to the plan of God. Christ had to suffer, he had to rise from the dead, and he was saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. What's his proof? Well, it's all over the New Testament, right? I mean, we hear the Scriptures, we think, well, they've got the New Testament Scriptures saying that Jesus... Wait a minute. The New Testament Scriptures aren't around yet, are they? He's looking to the Old Testament, the he- Scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, which is prophesying these two aspects of Jesus' ministry. His death and His resurrection are in accordance with prophecy. You killed Him, yes. God knew it. He ultimately purposed it. Because He's been up to something. He's active and moving, and this message of the Gospel will spread the centrality of Jesus' death and resurrection. This, Jesus conquered death. He is seated at the right hand of of the Father reigning as Messiah. Jesus' ministry on earth in life and death, His resurrection and ascension were the fulfillment of God's promises. So here's the simple point. Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. But then there's the complexity of this. The complexity of how this saving message moves from Jew to Gentile. That's not an easy issue. Articles are being written today and books are being written today trying to figure this thing out of how the gospel moves from Jew to Gentile. So there's tremendous complexity in this whole movement of God and there is the straightforward simplicity of Christ crucified and risen. But the point is that these early believers were utterly convinced that God was at work in this world to save sinners. Come back to the theme here today. Here's the point. They knew God was at work. They knew Jesus was reigning at the right hand of the Father. They knew He was doing something. He was saving people. And they knew, as 4.12 says, there's salvation in no other name. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. They weren't suggesting that Jesus had done some nice things that you might want to follow. They were saying He alone is the Savior. The centrality of Christ's death and resurrection. Second theme is the conquest of the gospel. As noted in the summary of each of the tracts of Acts, the gospel is unstoppable. The conquest of the gospel. It is by the declaration of the message of Jesus crucified and risen that God is working through His people to rescue lives and conquer Satan in this world. This is God's stated agenda. This is His focus. And all who belong to Him plug into that focus in their lives. The book of Acts leaves us fairly panting with desire to know more about all kinds of things. What happened? 
to Peter after he passes from the scene in the second half of the book. Where'd he go? Doesn't matter. Doesn't ultimately matter. How did Paul die? We know what tradition says, but how did he actually die? What happened there? We see the evidences of his coming to that place in 2 Timothy, but how did he die? We don't know. How did church government work, actually? We see pieces of the picture, but we really aren't told. Here is how polity is to work within the church. Why does the baptism of the Spirit sometimes accompany conversion, and other times it follows it? We're not told. The point is that these details are not the point. The point is that the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. It is advancing. It's not the people ultimately who advance it. It's God who advances it. God is in the business of conquering hearts and nothing is going to stop His loving invasion and eternal purposes. Absolutely nothing. The gospel will spread. It did and it will continue to do so. Gordon Fee captures this so well. I worked for a long time trying to put these things into words, and then you find this quotation, there it all is. He said it much more eloquently, so let me read it. It's excellent. The recurring motif that nothing can hinder this forward movement of the church empowered by the Holy Spirit makes us think that Luke also intended his readers to see this as a model for their existence. Is the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ a model for your existence. And the fact that Acts is in the canon further makes us think that surely this is the way the church was always intended to be. Evangelistic, joyful, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The centrality of the message of Jesus crucified and risen. Secondly, the conquest of this message. And thirdly, the persecution of witnesses. We can't miss this. This is a book of blood. There's all kinds of troubles in the book of Acts. Pages of Acts are filled with accounts of suffering of God's people. Now, their Savior prepared them for this, didn't he? Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. This is how they treated the prophets. This is how they're going to treat you. I am a crucified Savior. I will die. They're going to come after you. This is part of the package. And so in the book of Acts, we find Satan throwing everything he's got against the fledgling church. Bring it down. Stop it any way we can. Take out the leaders. Make life difficult. Stop them. Nothing stops the conquest of the gospel. It cannot be stopped any more than light flooding a dark room. And because their lives were plugged into and oriented toward the purposes of God, we see the disciples rejoicing as Jesus commanded when they are persecuted. Chapter 5 and verse 41. These are amazing ideas. We're not, this will make absolutely no sense to us if we don't see it in the context of Jesus' work and His preparation of His disciples. Acts 5 and verse 41. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They had been beaten. And they walked out rejoicing. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now wait a minute, didn't they get beat and told to stop? 
They got beaten and told to stop. They rejoiced and ignored the command because they had a command from a higher superior. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and they never quit, and it didn't matter what happened to them. It didn't matter how they suffered. They continued to do it. Now, listen. As we begin to wind our way toward bringing this together and to appeal to our own lives, getting beaten and told to stop telling people about Christ, walking out rejoicing and going back and sharing others, that is not people who are oriented to their own life, is it? These are people plugged in with the higher purposes of God. These are people who are not just living to make life as easy and enjoyable as they can until they die. These are people who have a much greater vision of life. The gospel is advanced at great personal cost to the evangelist. We will learn this over and again in the book of Acts. Persecution, number three. Number four, the power of the Holy Spirit and the rule of the ascended Christ. What does it matter that Jesus died and rose again? We've got to come to terms with the fact that what matters is that it means that He is ascended and reigning at God's right hand. As chapter 2 and verse 33 says, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing." Jesus has ascended, and the evidence of it, one of the evidences, is that He is pouring out the Spirit upon people. He's alive. He's acting. He's bringing about this response to His name by His Spirit. And this is a message that plays out. In fact, as we see it, we have entered into the last days, the era of the Spirit, through whom the reigning Lord Christ saves souls and transforms lives until He returns to establish His kingdom on earth. We are, as Douglas Moo puts it, the emerging people of God in the last days. The church is growing as it, appro- as it approaches the finality. We're Jews and Gentiles united by the Spirit to carry out the purposes of this reigning Christ in this world. Theme number five, the peace with godless rulers. I throw this in. It might seem a bit out of place, but I think this is a significant aspect and theme in the book of Acts. The Roman authorities persecute Christians in Acts. They make their life hard. Keep them in prison for no reason. They mock them and misuse them and forget about them and all kinds of things. But you will notice that the followers of Jesus did not try to overtake the political structures and create Christian nations. You will notice, indeed, that as Luke presents the relationship, he's constantly saying everything was at peace, everything was fine. Now, Paul runs into lots of troubles. But largely he's saying that all is well. Until Jesus returns to set up his millennial throne, they were content to honor and obey the ruling secular authorities, for God had ordained these authorities to preserve societal order. Jerusalem, dead center of Judaism, we operate within the structure. Rome, center of the ancient world, we operate within the structure. And everywhere in between, different municipalities, different governors, they weren't out to create Christian nations as such. Wonderful if it could be, if that were even possible. 
But that's not the point. The point is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to submit to whatever authorities are there until they step directly on the terrain that God, of God and the command of Christ. They're going to operate within that system. Now, there should be no confusion. Jesus is Lord of every inch of this planet right now. We do not concede ultimate sovereignty or to any secular authority, and this is why Peter says you ought to obey God rather than man. When God has spoken, God is to be obeyed. But having said that, the mission on which Jesus has sent us does not include establishing Christian governments as such. Jesus calls us to live freely in this world, submitting to the authorities that are in place as pilgrims and as ambassadors, influencing every culture in which we are embedded with the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what these early believers do consistently. The culture-creating mission we are called to undertake is the establishment of the culture of the local church in any environment and nation. And that, again, we see as a major theme. They go from place to place establishing churches, and there is to be order there. There is to be a culture there. But it operates in submission to whatever authorities happen to be there. You see, God's smart. Forgive me for speaking so poorly that way, but He knows what He's doing. It takes a lot of work to run a nation. God brings His people as salt and light to run a nation at certain places, but let's admit it, the vast majority of nations are run by people that have no time for God, don't know Him, aren't saved. Because it takes a lot of work. You've got to pour your life and your heart and your soul into governing people. God places that largely, not totally, but largely in the hands of unbelievers. We're to be at peace with that. Seeking to win every one of them to Christ... We are to operate within those structures to build churches to the glory of Christ. Within the household of God, we're to, to construct a culture that displays His glory, wisdom, and transforming power. Now, as you end this book, you notice in chapters 22 to 28, their amazingly detailed look at Roman jurisprudence, and probably intended by Luke to subtly encourage his Roman readers to tolerate Christians, if not to become one. To at least tolerate them. And this is a major theme of the early church. Uh, as, as the apostles pass off the scene and into those first leaders of the church, many of the treaties that we have were written to Roman governors, saying, listen, we are not trying to overtake the government. We are submissive and honor you as the leaders God has placed in charge. And the message that we are bringing is going to do nothing to harm your culture or your nation. It's only going to do good. This is, this is a, a persistent argument of the early historians, the early writers that historians view in the Christian church. But I think in part Luke is launching it, getting it going. By picturing the Roman authorities in their relationship with Christians as sometimes missing it, but basically as a respectful relationship between the two. It's impossible to preach this book in one setting, but if we put these themes on this structure, we begin to see what God is doing, let's bring it back to us in our day. First, I ask you, in light of this, are you aware of the historical outworking of God's salvation agenda in the world? What direction does this conquest of the gospel take? 
it moves in the book of Acts from east to west. We go from Jerusalem westward to Antioch, which serves as a hinge pin and flings the gospel across Western Europe. And as the ages pass, we enter in there, and as this book unfolds into Turkey and Greece and Italy, Paul is looking with eyes to Spain. It moves then as the ages pass throughout Western Europe and on from there across the sea to the Americas. And as that process has passed from east to west, where are we? We're today seeing dramatic response to the gospel in China. We're seeing dramatic response to the gospel in Africa today like we never have before. And as this movement moves, as this gospel moves from east to west, we've come back now where we're on the doorstep of returning to where it all began. The last bastion of resistance appears to be the Middle East. But Satan's walls will fall there as well. God is raising laborers from the U.S., but more and more He is raising up laborers from other nations of the earth to go to these entirely unreached places and to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be real smart to think through this. From Jerusalem to Antioch to Western Europe to the Americas, Moving on to Africa, to China, to think that, you know, we're getting to the end of this thing, aren't we? We're moving into the Middle East, and there are some unique stories that are arising out of the Middle East of people who have never heard of the name of Jesus, don't even know who he is, who are responding when they hear the gospel. Are you aware of the historical outworking of God's salvation agenda in this world as this planet turns and as the conquest of the gospel makes its way back to Jerusalem? It's a Jerusalem to Jerusalem story. Now I say that, that's just information in our head, but it should cause our skin to tingle. And we think of what God is doing and where He's brought things over these two thousand years. But I say that to lead to the more personal. Secondly, are you orienting your daily life to God's sovereign program of saving his people from among the nations? Are you plugged in? I mean you personally. This church has to ask that question. You personally, we have to ask that question. God is actively laboring in this world to create a people for his name. If you're not actively participating in this program, And I say with all the respect that I can, honestly, to say you need to get a life. You need to get off of dead center and the navel gazing and look at the great purposes of God that are being worked out in this world and plug in to get into it, to get involved with it, to center your life and orient your life to this great message of conquest in Christ. You are, I guarantee, pouring out your life every day for what will burn, and you're ignoring what will bring glory through all eternity to the Savior if all you're thinking about is your life. What you can get, what you can do, how you can prosper. You need to get a life. 
paraphrase Martin Luther, he said, Jesus' kingdom involves living in the midst of your enemies. And that's what a lot of the problem is, isn't it? We can't be popular here and serve the cause of Christ. The majority don't come to him as Savior. I can't live in popularity in this world if I am plugged into his program. I'm going to look foolish. I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to have different values and purposes. And that's often where the rub comes. But did you hear what Luther says? That Jesus' kingdom involves living in the midst of your enemies. He who refuses to suffer in the midst of the enemies of the gospel does not want to belong to the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among his friends, to sit among roses and lilies. He does not want to sit with bad people, but only with devout people. It's okay to sit with the roses and the lilies and the devout people. That's what church is, hopefully. But that can't be it. We've got to sit with the enemies of Christ. And then he gets really pointed and says, Oh, you blasphemers and you betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been spared? Those are hard words, but you know they're right. Who would ever be spared if Christ did what you're doing and what I'm doing? Are we plugged into the program? Are we oriented in our lives to this great saving work of God? If you are not interested in the salvation of the lost, if you just look at that, this is sort of a thing that Christians do to get more money and just to spread their influence, and it's really not all that important. If you're not seeking to win others to Jesus, you need to seriously ask yourself why. Why don't I care that the lost come to Christ? Why am I so out of touch with the life and the purposes of God? The energies and interests we naturally invest in seeking our own agendas should be equally invested in winning the enemies of Jesus to saving faith. Enemies as we once were, but for His grace. What is our confidence in any of this? To live among my enemies doesn't sound very exciting. But as this book ends, we have this great word of hope. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. But he said in testimony, as he proclaimed the gospel, verse 28, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Not all of them. A distinct minority. But they will listen. Why? Because we're so good with our witness? Because our lives just overwhelm people to Christ? I hope we're good at our witness, and I hope our lives do overwhelm people. But that's not the reason, is it? It's because God has a purpose in this world to save the lost. It's because God is working through His Holy Spirit to enlighten eyes and to bring people to saving faith. Christian, this is tragedy. To reject the gospel and to live for nothing but our own gut. We know that's tragic, but it is also tragic. To receive the gospel by faith and then to fail to orient your life to the greater purposes of God. Are you plugged in? Are you oriented to the big purpose of the saving acts of God? Let's bow for prayer.
Father, who among us can stand with head raised, with chin out, thumping our chest and saying, I, I'm an example. Lord, we all need to change. With our heads bowed and in humility, we come before you and we acknowledge, God, that our personal kingdoms and our personal interests and agendas and pleasures are so very important to us. And so often, we simply walk in sin. But God, I pray that there would be, through this series of sermons and perhaps beginning today, a revival of growing interest a reformation in our lives in which we see ourselves as part of the great purposes of God, the saving plan that you are working out through Christ. I pray, Father, that by your grace, in your mercies to us in Jesus, that we would live lives that are rich and full and centered upon the work that Christ is doing in this world. We all need to change. And I pray that you'll work out this change as you rebuke us by the fervor of this ancient church, as you encourage us by their struggles and trials, as you remind us through the weeks as we have opportunity that it is your power that matters, not our wisdom and our strength. God, I pray that we would see the centrality of the gospel of Christ crucified and risen, be willing to suffer for that cause, resting in the power of the Spirit. May you do this work within us as we operate in this world as citizens who are passing through and whose kingdom is in another land ultimately. God, I pray to this end, and for any who know you not as Savior, if the light of salvation has not dawned, I pray that this message, this conquest of the gospel will be made clear today, that you would bring a yielding to your purposes in the heart of such a one. In Christ's name I pray, amen.